Hello and welcome to the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host, Ed. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I hope that you find this episode insightful. If you are new to the podcast, I have a catalogue of previous episodes and interviews discussing a broad range of different related topics surrounding veganism, morality, ethics, communication and the environment, as well as discussing current events. If you want more episodes of the podcast or if you'd just like to become a supporter of the work that I do, then you can sign up to my Patreon to get an exclusive patron only Q&A episode every single month where I go through your questions. And finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, then it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host Ed and I hope that you're doing well and that you have been safe since I last uploaded. In today's episode, I thought that we could take the time to talk about Seaspiracy the new documentary on Netflix, which if you haven't seen yet, I really recommend that you do. It basically talks about what's happening in our oceans and the role that the fishing industries have on the decimation of our oceans. And even as a vegan who I thought knew a lot about the impact that's been had on our oceans through the commercial fishing industry, I was still very surprised, I think, disappointed and at times shocked by the amount of destruction that's happening and also the flagrant disregard that has been shown by these industries and by those involved. It's funny, obviously, I've spoken extensively about the environment before. Last year, I made a video as well, where it was like a trilogy about fish and marine life. We made one on the ethics of eating animals from the ocean. We made one about the environmental impact of eating animals from the ocean. And then we made one about the health impacts. And then, of course, why a plant-based diet is just as healthy in terms of getting the omegas and the nutrients that we normally think that we need from fish. In fact, it's healthier, of course. So I made that trilogy last year. And obviously, through researching that and writing that and exploring that, I learned a lot about what's happening in the oceans. But I think what this documentary showed is the interconnectedness of so much of what is happening around the world related to our oceans, how the actions of some of what we choose to do as consumers in a supermarket is directly impacting people in low-income coastal nations. Of course, people in places like Thailand and Southeast Asia who are being enslaved, literally enslaved to catch fish, particularly shrimp, that's then been exported to the West, including the UK where I am, the US as well. And we're consuming products that have been created, if that's the right word, through slave labor. And we're eating animals who have been killed through a process that also enslaves humans and exploits humans to do the catching and killing of these animals that we then consume from supermarkets that have nice labels on them and we don't think twice about the impact that we're having. I think the documentary really reinforced the scope of the problem. So if you haven't seen it, I really, really would recommend watching it. I think Ali and Lucy Tabrizi, who made the film, have done a really good job of, I suppose, condensing a lot of information into 90 minutes. And we're talking about the oceans and the impact that has been had on our oceans. That's a lot of information. And I think the way they structured it was was very competent, was very well done, because it it took you through this journey as a viewer. And it also, I think, as a non-vegan watching it, you are taken through this process of what many vegans have gone through, which is these initial questions, these initial concerns, all these plastic pollution, whaling, dolphin hunting, all of these things, marine parks, which if you listen to my last podcast, and also if you watch the video that I uploaded about my vegan journey, you'll know that marine parks was one of the first steps in my journey to veganism. You've seen what was happening to 
orcas and, and dolphins and aquariums. And so the documentary resonated with me because in a way it takes you through that same process going, oh, well, what's happening in marine parks? What's happening to dolphins and whales? The plastic pollution. And then it all starts to form this bigger picture of, well, actually this is all interconnected based on the actions that we as individuals make as well. And even if we were to boycott going to aquariums and marine parks, well, actually the impact that we're having in our oceans and to whales and dolphins and all the other marine animals that live in the oceans is huge. And it's just through our everyday choices. And we often don't think about that. So I thought that was a really great way of telling the story and, and kind of bringing a viewer along on that, on that journey, I suppose, of discovery, one that we as vegans have, or many of us at least, have followed in a similar way before. Now, obviously, there has been some pushback from the industry, the fishing industries. I mean, that's to be expected, of course. And what was interesting is before the documentary was even released, the National Fisheries Institute in the US had released some statements and were kind of sending out memos to different seafood companies, to retailers and distributors of seafood, or I should say sea animals, marine animals, and were kind of prepping them and warning them about this documentary. And so it was very obvious that once the documentary had been released, there was going to be some pushback. And so what we had, or what seemed to happen was, the film went out on Netflix. I think it's kind of exceeded everyone's expectations. And it's been trending in the top 10 in many countries around the world. It hit number one here in the UK, which was super exciting. And I think that the National Fisheries Institute probably thought maybe something on the same lines as the filmmakers, which is, this is a documentary that's going to go out, it's going to get shared, people will see it, but its impact might not be that big. So we'll send out a few memos and kind of tell people what to expect. But actually what happened is the documentary kicked off really, really big. Lots of celebrities sharing it and talking about it. And then a few days after the documentary came out, all of a sudden you started to see these kind of like PR type statements and responses being distributed around the press and this kind of media narrative of, oh, actually debunking these claims and oh, is this fact or fiction, which I think was to be expected. Well, to be expected in, in the sense of if the film was going to do well, but I think it took the industry by surprise because it took them a few days to catch up. But anyway, the documentary has been out now for a couple of weeks, of course. And so there has been this big dialogue that's taken place. And so what I thought we could do in this episode is kind of go into some of these kind of criticisms of the documentary, see if they hold up, see if there's any truth to these criticisms, and also kind of just talk about the documentary itself. And I thought maybe I could kind of <laughs> waffle on, I suppose, about some of the things that I found to be most shocking and I think most disturbing. And so I think the first thing to start is to kind of go through some of these objections, right? And, and kind of work them out. And there's a few things that I've seen, which I found to be very disingenuous in terms of the arguments that people have been saying. Well, I'll start with this argument because I think this is the most disingenuous argument. And what annoys me about this argument is it's not just an argument that's used in terms of seaspiracy and eating fish. It's an argument that's used about veganism all the time. When we say like, it's immoral to eat animals, or we'll have a conversation on the street, or maybe we'll share something online on social media. And we say, look, it's immoral to needlessly take the life of an animal when we don't have to, especially for something as arbitrary as taste, which is the reason why so many of us eat meat and dairy and eggs, of course. And then someone will reply going, well, you shouldn't say that because there are people in the world who, who have to eat meat to survive. And I think, well, I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to you and you don't. And I've seen this argument used a lot against conspiracy uh, in the media, people online, people saying, no, it's not right for the documentary to say that we shouldn't eat fish because, well, some people around the world rely on fish to survive. And they say, well, the documentary is not aimed at those people. These people are sustenance fishers, right? So that means they have to eat fish to live, to survive. I find it so disingenuous. And I think, 
I think I find it very immoral, to be honest, that people who are in situations where they don't have to do something then leverage the situations of those who potentially do to justify their own actions. The idea that people are going into supermarkets, buying farmed salmon, buying wild cod from whatever ocean, and then saying, look, well, the reason I'm buying this is because you can't tell me that it's wrong to eat fish because millions of people around the world are sustenance fishers who rely on it. So you're, you're conflating your lived experience with, with their lived experience. And that's not right, considering you have the privilege to have the choice to not consume those products when other people don't have the privilege to choose what food they would and wouldn't like to eat. And that's the point of this argument, isn't it? Is to say, well, there's a separation between those who can choose and those who can't. And this film isn't aimed at those people who can't. So I think that's a really frustrating argument and one that I find to be unpleasant when used in the context of justifying harming animals, leveraging someone else's situation. Another thing I've seen people say, and it's another argument that's often leveled against vegans, which is that it's not right to tell the individual, the consumer. I saw a, uh, a TikTok and the TikTok said that if you've watched Seaspiracy and your take home at the end of it is that you should stop eating fish, then you've been gaslighted by the documentary. And I thought, Really, is that what we're saying now? Because there is this argument that people make, which is that it's not right to, to say to the individual that they shouldn't be doing something, that it's the fault of the companies, the corporations, the industries. And of course, it is their fault and the buck lies with them. And what's happening in our oceans and indeed to our environment and to animals in general, whether they be on land or in, in the seas, of course, is down to these industries, but it's also down to us. And I think that it's really, again, disappointing when people try and push the burden of responsibility away from them and indeed their peers by saying that it's gaslighting to say that we as consumers have an obligation to act responsibly as well. Because the reality is we do have a moral obligation to act responsibly. And I think if you watch Seaspiracy and at the end, you don't feel like you should personally change. You recognize there's a problem, but then you say, well, it's not my responsibility as an individual. No, it's the companies and the corporations. And that's the take home that you have. And I think that's deeply upsetting because you're sh shrugging off your responsibility and your obligation to address these issues as well. And we all have a responsibility to address these issues. And that's not taking blame away from these industries. That's not not holding them accountable. Actually, it's the opposite. You're boycotting them. Boycotts have been used so effectively throughout history to show disgruntlement as a form of disruptive action. And so what we're doing is, is showing an urgent need to transition away from these industries through the action of boycotting the products. So it's not gaslighting for the documentary to say that. And plus the documentary also says, look, governments have a responsibility to stop subsidizing the industries. You know, they have a responsibility to at least kind of cordon off 30% of the ocean, one third of the ocean, and make these, this area a no-take zone, meaning no fishing. Because one of the points the documentary makes, which is really outrageous, is that governments are creating what we're calling marine protection areas, MPAs. But in these MPAs, the marine protection areas, there is still bottom trawling, there's still dredging, there's still longline fishing. So these marine protection areas, they don't mean anything. They just sound good. It's just so governments can turn around and say, well, actually, we've corned off this amount of the sea and made it an MPA, a marine protected area. But that doesn't mean anything. In the documentary, George Monbiot, who's been interviewed, says that apparently <laughs> there's an interview and they did, they did show it in the documentary, not actually play it, but they did show what the interview was. And someone's been interviewed from the government about these marine protection areas. And the person interviewing them is saying, well, what makes it a protected area? 
And it, it turned out that they were limiting kayaking. I mean, what? They were limiting water sports for humans. And then they were saying that makes it a marine protected area. Yet in the UK and indeed around the world, bottom trawling and super trawlers are in marine protected areas. It doesn't mean anything. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit off tangent at, at that point, but I guess what I'm trying to say is we can't rely on governments and companies to do the hard work when there's no financial incentive for them to do it. So we do need to act and we do need to recognize the moral responsibility. And the documentary still does make the point, look, that governments do need to do things, but at the end of the day, it's a joint, it's a joint responsibility as well. And I think now that it's 2021, we should be more wise to the fact that these labels on products can't be trusted. And I'll talk more about that in this podcast. You know, labels like the MSC label and such. We should be aware these industries are trying to sell us something. You know, it's funny when Coca-Cola released an advert, we know they're trying to sell us Coca-Cola. And I would like to think that if Coca-Cola said, look, Coca-Cola is great. We care about people. We care about this. I'd like to think that we're at the point where we can see through what they're doing. But we have to apply that same kind of scrutiny to the fishing industries, to the supermarkets to the meat, dairy, and egg industries. We have to recognize that these labels, whether they be humane certifications like Red Tractor or RSPCA, or whether they be sustainability certifications in the ocean like MSC, whether they be dolphin safe labels, we have to surely start to recognize that these labels are there to serve one purpose, which is sell these products. That's the whole point of them. And so I think we have to start to scrutinize more what it is that these industries are telling us. And I think ultimately, this buzzword, sustainability, responsible sourcing, they're just marketing terms like any other now, free range, high welfare. They're just marketing terms. They don't have any meaning. And this is another thing the documentary says, which is when we talk about sustainable fishing, what's the legal definition of that? There's no objective definition. And the person from Oceana who is interviewed in the film makes this point. She says there's no definition for sustainability when it comes to fisheries. Again, it's just a word that's thrown around and every company says they're sustainable and every seafood brand says they're sustainable and every fishery, everyone involved says, yeah, of course we're sustainable and of course we responsibly source because they're not going to say any differently. These companies and these brands and these industries are not going to turn around and say, oh yeah, it's true. Yeah, lots of bycatch, don't really care. Lots of seabirds, lots of sea mammals, lots of fish. Yeah, lots of animals are killed and yeah, we don't really care. And it's very damaging for the environment. We do us bottom trawling and dredging and such. And yeah, it's really bad. Of course, that's not going to happen. And so when these statements have been released by these organizations, I just find it a little bit rich because of course these organizations are going to say these things. And I think the problem is these organizations release these statements and these statements come out, but really the question should be, well, what integrity do these organizations have? You know, when the Aquaculture Alliance, for example, comes out and says, you know, it's wrong for the documentary to say we don't care about animal welfare. Well, should we take that on face value? I don't believe that we should. I mean, I think when organizations are putting out these statements, we should do diligence and look further into these organizations. And it's always about incentive, isn't it? What is the incentive here? What is the incentive behind these organizations trying to make comments to undermine the documentary. What do they have to lose from the documentary and what do they have to gain by 
maintaining the public's image of what they do. Well, everything, I mean, everything, all these labels are reliant on positive PR, on positive public image. The Aquaculture Alliance is so desperate to have good public image because the aquaculture industry is so demonstrably bad. I mean, the idea that we're farming billions of fish in tanks, because that's what aquaculture is, it's fish farming. So the idea that we're building concrete tanks or sectioning off areas of lakes and oceanic areas and farming intensively billions, when we look around the world, billions of marine animals, pumping them full of antibiotics, causing huge amounts of disease like sea lice and parasitic infections, and a huge amount of waste. Of course, they have a difficult job with PR because their industry and the reality of their industry, the objective reality of their industry is so demonstrably terrible. It just objectively is. And so for them to come out and say, well, it's wrong for the documentary to say we don't care about animals. In the documentary, they literally go to one of these aquaculture farms and show this like concrete kind of tank thing that's just filled with dead fish, filled with them, festering corpses of animals who were killed for these industries. And then they turn around and say, we care about animal welfare. And I just think it's frustrating that this stuff gets printed and it's just taken off face value. Oh, okay. Well, the Aquaculture Alliance said they care about the animals. So I guess that means that they do. And I guess that footage of that tank filled with dead salmon, and I guess seeing this footage of salmon with sea lice, and I guess just thinking about salmon being intensively farmed in these concrete pens on netted areas, I guess that doesn't matter anymore because the Aquaculture Alliance said they care about animals. It's frustrating, isn't it? But I think it's ultimately to be expected. And I think what is probably probably happening at this point is that people are beginning to see free all of this. I think we've had this information thrown at us by fossil fuel companies throughout the 20th century, cigarette companies. We've had these industries who we recognize are very powerful and we recognize have ulterior motives. We've seen it well documented in the past hundred years, how they, it's the dissemination of doubt, isn't it? It's the dissemination of doubt to try and reassure consumers there's not a problem. And I think that we're at the point now where we are seeing through that. And so I think the impact of this documentary is huge. I'm sure it's been, been watched by millions of people and having a very positive impact on millions of people. But there have been these statements. So let's get into it in a little bit more detail. I appreciate everything's been a little bit more broad. So let's go into a little bit more detail. I think I've kind of discussed the t- couple of like the overarching arguments that people are trying to use just to shrug off the whole film or shrug off the message of the film, try and remove personal responsibility. But what about some of the things that happen in the film? One of the most memorable moments of the film comes from Mark Palmer, who works at the Earth Island Institute. Now, if you've seen the documentary, you'll know exactly which bit I'm referring to. It's the bit about dolphin safe tuna. In the, I believe, 1960s and 1970s, dolphins were being killed en masse by these tuna companies. And it became a really significant problem and people became very aware of it. Obviously, around the same time, people became very concerned about whaling. Animals such as whales and dolphins and porpoises in the ocean was becoming very concerning to people. Greenpeace were doing a lot of work around that. And so I think there was a huge amount of concern about these animals in our oceans. Unfortunately, there wasn't a huge amount of concern about, well, all animals in the ocean. But at the end of the day, people were starting to connect what was happening to animals with the products they were buying. Obviously, that creates a huge problem because these industries want people to buy these products. And so they needed to 
do something. Now, I'm not saying the Earth Institute was created to protect the industries like that. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. It, it might well be that the Earth Island Institute was created with good intentions. Now, I think often these companies can be created with good intentions, but things can go wrong along the way, especially when the income generated from these companies and from their initiatives is so heavily dependent on these logos being in past, these certifications being given out, that does create a unique and, and uh, substantial problem, of course. So what we have in the documentary is Ali Tabrizi, who's the person in the documentary, interviewing Mark Palmer from the Earth Island Institute about dolphin safe tuna. And we have this really crazy moment where Ali says, can you guarantee that dolphin safe tuna is dolphin safe? And Mark Palmer very bluntly and openly just says, no, we can't guarantee it. And Ali's like, oh, so dolphins could be being killed. And he just says, well, you know, we, we can't guarantee it. And then they talk about the observers because there are observers who go out on these ships from time to time to, to make sure that no dolphins are being killed. And Mark Palmer very openly says, well, they could be bribed. Oh, okay, so now the people who are meant to be making sure that these tuna companies are <laughs> being honest can be bribed by these tuna companies. Well, that's really concerning. And so then uh, Ali's kind of like saying, so well, what should people do if they want to buy, want to protect dolphins? And then Mark's like, you should buy dolphin safe tuna. And Ali's like, but you just said that you can't guarantee it and that the observers can be bribed. And it's just like, whoa, that's actually crazy. That's insane. Because for decades, people have wrongfully believed that by buying dolphin safe tuna, you're buying dolphin safe tuna. And if it can't be guaranteed to be dolphin safe tuna, then surely that label can't be applied. That must be false advertising. For decades, the Earth Island Institute have been lying to people or have been knowingly placing a label that cannot be guaranteed to be true. Now, this is concerning for a number of reasons. Firstly, because the Earth Island Institute make money from licensing the logo. So what that means is companies and brands can use the logo, but they have to pay for the privilege to do it. So now that's a problem straight away because the Earth Island Institute immediately incentivized to give the logo out, right? It's in their financial interests to have the logo used. If people stop using the logo, then well, it becomes meaningless and they stop making money. So it's in their interests to make sure the logo has been used. Okay. Now, secondly, of course, the tuna companies, it's in their interest, isn't it? Because they get to say it's dolphin safe tuna and then the companies will use their tuner and put the label on it and everyone's happy. So it's in their interests as well. So everybody wins in the situation. What about the observers? Well, the observers work for Earth Island Institute. They are employees of the very company that they're going out on these boats to see if the company can make money from them. So what I mean by that is Earth Island Institute employ these observers. The observers go onto the vessels to see if the vessels are doing something the Earth Island Institute can make money from. That's just a chain of everyone winning when the certification is given, when the logo is licensed. So of course it can't be guaranteed. And of course the logo is going to be handed out, even though they know it can't be guaranteed. Now, Mark Palmer, perhaps unsurprisingly, said, well, my uh, statements were taken out of context. But what could the context be to change what Mark Palmer was saying? If he's been taken out of context, then the context needs to invalidate what he said which means that either he was misrepresented, so he either said those things, but he didn't. He was saying it in a way which showed that he didn't actually mean those things, 
or, or what? If he was taken out of context, what does that mean? Well, actually, he clarified in a statement. And his statement does not make me feel any better, put it that way. So Matt Palmer clarified to the press that in a follow-up statement, that he answered, there are no guarantees in life, but that drastically reduced the number of vessels intentionally chasing and netting dolphins, as well as other regulations in place, that the number of dolphins that are killed is very low. He said, the film took my statement out of context to suggest there is no oversight and we don't know whether dolphins are being killed. That is not true. Well, actually, I don't think that's true, Mark, because the documentary is not saying that you don't know whether dolphins are being killed. The documentary is saying that you do know that dolphins are being killed. That's the whole problem. You know that dolphins are being killed. That's the issue. So the doc- documentary isn't saying that you don't know whether they are. The documentary is saying that you do know that they are. <laughs> and the idea that he says, I was taken out of context, but then his reaffirming statement just further clarifies and reaffirms what he said. So I was taken out of context and here's my statement to clear that up. But in my statement to clear it up, I'm just going to reiterate what I already said, which is there are no guarantees. How does that show that you were taken out of context? It just shows that what you're saying is that there are no guarantees. And also he says that they've reduced the number of vessels intentionally chasing and netting dolphins. All right, well, that's... <laughs> That doesn't fill me with confidence because I thought the whole point of the dolphin safe label was about reducing accidental deaths of dolphins. I thought it was, you know, these long lines are put out in the oceans and dolphins can get entangled in them and be killed. And so it's about reducing accidental deaths. But Mark said, no, 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 there's these vessels that are out there intentionally netting and killing dolphins. And so we're trying to reduce those. Brilliant. That makes me feel so much better knowing there are literally ships out there who are intentionally killing dolphins. All right, that just makes the whole thing even worse doesn't help him, does it? When I was researching about the Earth Island Institute and about Mark Palmer and these things, I came across some other statements that he had made. And, and you're probably not surprised to hear that the dolphin safe label has been criticized before. And so because it's been criticized before, well, Mark's had to release statements in the past before. One of my, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite statements that he made was back in 2018 when dolphin safe was being called out. He released a statement saying, basically defending it. And in this statement, he said, Others have expressed concern that there is nothing to guarantee the label, which is not true at all. No, Mark. <laughs> no, you're the one saying there's no guarantees. So back in 2018, Mark's criticizing people that say there are no guarantees. Flash forward to 2020 or 2021 even, and Mark's saying that there are no guarantees. It's like, well, it seems to me that the Dolphin Safe label and Earth Island Institute are just making things up as they go along. And they can't say definitively that there are guarantees because, well, that would be a lie. And they know it would be a lie. So they're in, well, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place where they either have to lie or they have to, well, be honest. But then being honest shows that they've been lying. (laughs) So they've kind of put themselves in in an impossible situation. And Mark's aware of that. So he has to keep flip-flopping from it being, yes, guaranteed, or no, we can't guarantee everything, of course. And And uh, yeah, dolphins are killed. It's just the numbers are very low. Again, if you recognize that dolphins are being killed, even if it's only one, because in the documentary, Mark says that one dolphin and you're out. He says that in the documentary. But then in his statements after the documentary, he reaffirms that he knows that dolphins are being killed. So he's lying. He's lying. And the dolphin safe label means nothing. And that's been shown by his statements and indeed by, well, just the objective reality of what's going on, I suppose. Another statement Mark made, I think this was in 2015. Here's another statement. The federal dolphin safe law includes provisions that no dolphins can be killed or seriously injured in any ocean by any tuna fishing method, 
in order to qualify for the Dolphin Safe label, well, then you know that you're handing out fraudulently. You know that you're handing out in contradiction of the law because you're saying that it's the law to make sure that no dolphins are killed in any way by any method in any ocean. And yet you are saying on camera now and on the record now that you know that dolphins are being killed. Wow. It's unbelievable, isn't it? But I, I do want to make this point because I think it's really important and it's speciesist and hypocritical to get hung up on the dolphin thing. As consumers, it's really, really paradoxical to be like, my dead tuna could have resulted in a dolphin being killed. Or it's terrible to kill dolphins, kill all the tuna. That's fine though. What we have to recognize is that tuna are sentient animals as well who feel and who suffer and who have just as much right to live out their life in the oceans as dolphins do. We have this sentimental attitude towards dolphins, which is great. And we should care about dolphins and we should want to protect dolphins. We shouldn't want to protect dolphins and not protect tuna. And if we really care about protecting dolphins and the oceans, then we wouldn't eat tuna. And not for sustainability reasons, for ethical reasons. Let's just leave tuna, dolphins, and every other marine animal where they belong, which is in the ocean, not in nets, not on our plates, not canned in tins and cans. No, let's leave them in the oceans where they belong. Let's let our oceans repopulate. Let's let our oceans do what they want to do, which is survive. Let's take the nets out. Let's stop fishing. Let's stop doing these terribly damaging things that we continue to do. And let's stop trying to find excuses for it. And let's stop trying to hide the violence of these industries by putting nice labels on them that tell us that it's safe from dolphin harm, which is not only a lie, but is irrelevant because other animals are being killed anyway. And so it doesn't matter if that logo exists or not. Buying the product will never be ethically justified because of an animal being killed, whether that animal is a tuna, a dolphin, a salmon, a mackerel, a cod, a haddock, a whale. It doesn't matter. And we really, well, need to recognize that. I don't want to get hung up on the whole sustainability dolphin safe thing and overlook the most important issue and argument, which is it's wrong to take the life of an animal when we don't have to. And of course, we don't have to eat sea animals, land animals, or their secretions either. Okay. The other thing I want to address is the plastic. The documentary starts by talking about Ali caring about plastic, and then it starts to follow him as he learns about the impact of the fishing industry on plastic pollution. Then the documentary asks the question, why is this issue not being spoken about by the plastic organizations, the organizations that are trying to oppose plastic pollution and consumption? One of the organizations they talk to is called the Plastic Pollution Coalition. Again, this is a really memorable moment. It's always these interviews in these documentaries that bring out these moments and they're so telling, aren't they? The reactions of the people involved, the answers of the people involved are so, so telling. It's not to say that these people are bad people. I think Mark Palmer knows something and he knows that he's lying and he's making all these hypocritical statements. And so I hold him a little bit differently. I think these people in the Plastic Pollution Coalition, I think they're probably driven by a very, a very sincere belief that they want to make a difference when it comes to plastic. And they do, I don't doubt, in lots of areas, whether that be plastic straws as an example, or different single-use plastics. But there is an over, an overarching problem here, which is that through all of this sincerity about plastic, there is something suspicious happening, which is that they're not talking about one of the most prevalent forms of plastic pollution in the ocean and the most damaging form of plastic pollution in the ocean. So the documentary 
draws on a study that looked at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is an area of plastic accumulation in the ocean, the largest area of plastic accumulation in the ocean, and is 1.6 million square kilometers in size, which is three times the size of France thereabouts, one size or one sixth the size of the US. So it's huge, absolutely massive. In the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, 46% of all plastic is fishing related, which means that 86% of the macroplastics are fishing related. So macro being the larger, the larger forms of plastic. So that's a shocking statistic. So Ali goes to the Plastic Pollution Coalition and says, hang on a minute, why aren't you talking about this issue? And there's this kind of very awkward discussion with one lady who works there. And then I think the head or the CEO or whatever the title is of the person who runs the Plastic Pollution Coalition, who becomes very defensive, asks them to turn the camera off and yeah, it doesn't react very well. Now, afterwards, they released a statement defending themselves and they said a couple of things. Firstly, they said, well, actually, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is just one area of the ocean. So it's wrong, in effect, to kind of like pinpoint this as being central to the problem when it's just one area which is a strange thing for them to say because, well, actually, it's kind of insane for them to say that because, like I said before, this is the largest area of plastic pollution. And not only that, it probably provides a good framework to work out what the rest of the ocean looks like when it comes to plastic pollution. It's very unlikely that the fishing gear is just an issue in that one area, the largest area of plastic pollution. Just an issue there, but actually the rest of the ocean, yeah, it's not that big a problem. So I think trying to undermine and downplay the significance of that is alarming. Especially if 46% of it was plastic straws, they would be up in arms about it. On their website, they have like a campaign. It's a project called The Last Plastic Straw Movement. And what's really comical is that they have these objectives and it's like, say no to plastic straws, refuse plastic straws. And it's like, well, why aren't we saying, say no to fish? Why aren't we saying, say no to marine products? Why aren't we saying that? Because Plastic straws make up 0.03% of the plastic pollution in the ocean. 0.03%. A problem, but a tiny fraction of the problem. 46% of plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is fishing nets. This should be front and central to what the Plastic Pollution Coalition is saying. And it's not just the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. There was a study on macroplastics in the ocean, and it revealed that 70% of the macroplastics on the ocean surface were fishing gear. 70%. On the remote Henderson Island, which isn't inhabited by humans, 60% of all the plastic on the beach there was fishing related. This is a huge problem. Again, the coalition tries to further undermine the role of fishing gear in oceanic plastic pollution by saying that it only makes up 10%. They cite this WWF study. Now that might be true. Let's say it is only 10%. Okay. 10% is still significant and it's still 333 times worse than plastic straws. But on their website, they had this whole thing about plastic straws and saying no to plastic straws, but they don't mention fishing at all. I couldn't find anything about fishing apart from their statement about seaspiracy, which is really, really worrying. And not only that, but fishing gear is the most damaging form of plastic pollution. It's the most dangerous to marine life. And so it doesn't really matter so much if it's 10% or 50% because it's the most damaging even at 10%. So it should still be front and central to the conversation. Like imagine if it is 50%. Imagine if it is the 46% that it is in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but everywhere in the ocean. Now that could well be the case. So it's outrageous to try and undermine the impact of fishing gear and to try and shrug it off. But at the same time, have a whole project, a whole movement dedicated to the plastic straw 
which is even by their estimations or the studies they're citing, 333 times less bad than fishing gear. That's really concerning. So again, I don't think necessarily that they're bad people. I'm sure they very sincerely care about plastic, but for whatever reason, there's a big omission. And I think it comes down to probably what happens with a lot of these environmental organizations. Although to be fair, since Conspiracy came out, there is a lot more conversation from the Sierra Club, from Greenpeace, from WWF about meat, dairy, and egg consumption. And there has been a significantly larger output of information in the past few years from these organizations. And so it could well be that Seaspiracy encourages these oceanic environmental organizations to start doing the same because it seems that Conspiracy did it for land animal product production. So let's hopefully see if Seaspiracy does the same for these oceanic organizations as well. And it might well do. So that's a hope, of course. And so it is just strange to me that it isn't front and central. And what's interesting is on their website, through their statement about Seaspiracy, the coalition cite this WWF study about 10%. But the WWF on that study, where they talk about it being 10%, they say that fishing gear must be central in the fight against plastic pollution. And so it's like the coalition have found this study. They maybe Googled like how much oceanic plastic comes from fishing gear and they see this 10%. So they've cited that. But the actual headline to what they cited says that fishing gear must be central in the fight against plastic pollution. So to me, the fact that they've gone onto this webpage or they've found this study, or they've found this report, they've taken the 10% figure, but overlooked the header, the headline, the main focus of the study, the main message from the study. The fact that they've overlooked that just really reaffirms to me why the documentary needed to ask these questions. Well, why aren't you talking about it? Why are you taking this study and citing the 10% figure, but not actually making it front and central in what it is that you're doing, which is supposedly fighting against plastic pollution? Why aren't you making that a front and center part of your objectives, part of your discourse? It's weird, isn't it? It's really weird. And I think, again, to go back to what I was saying, which I didn't complete, was that I think the reason why is because you kind of want to tell people something they want to hear. And the majority of people don't want to be told, stop eating fish. The majority of people want to be told, plastic straws are the enemy, single-use plastics are the enemy. Because then you go, yes, they are. It's not a, a judgmental message. It's not an intimidating message. It's a very easy message to get if you're a consumer. Because on the one hand, it's easy to not use plastic straws and to avoid single-use plastic cups. It's really, really easy to do that. And you don't feel personally judged and you're putting the blame on these companies for handing out these items. But if you say, look, fishing is the biggest form of plastic pollution when it comes to macroplastics, may well be in other forms as well. And not only that is the most damaging form of plastic pollution on marine life and the ecosystems. All of a sudden you're saying to people, stop doing something. And that thing that you're telling them to stop doing is something that's not as easy or is not, not so much something they would want to stop doing compared to plastic straws, right? So is it good for them, these organizations that raise money through donations? Does it serve a purpose? Does it help them? And that's probably why they don't do it so much. And whether that's conscious or subconscious, I guess is up for argument. But I think that there's probably an element of both consciousness and subconsciousness when it comes to making that decision. But that's the reality of it anyway. We've got about 15 minutes left, and I do just want to touch on the sustainability aspect of things. Now, this is a huge conversation, of course. And so maybe I'll have time to talk about the MSC, maybe I won't. 
But when it comes to sustainability, the idea of sustainable fishing is, or sustainable commercial fishing, is so ridiculous when you look at what's happened to our oceans. So for example, the UN states that 87% of the world's fisheries are either fully exploited or overexploited. 87%. That means that, well, on top of that, 90% of large fish are gone because of the fishing industries. 90%. We've seen a huge reduction in the biomass of many species of animals. The decimation of sharks of keystone species and the obliteration of the coral reefs, of the seabeds. And we're still talking about this notion of sustainable fishing, which to me is outrageous. Now, what's really outrageous about it is we're not being told to not eat fish. We're not even told to reduce fish consumption. We're being told it's okay by sustainable fish. Well, like I said before, there's no definition for sustainability when it comes to fisheries. That's what Oceana says. So what am I buying when I'm buying sustainable fish? Now, every company, every brand, every (laughs) seafood seller says that they source sustainable and responsible seafood. So how can the oceans be dying? How can 87% of fisheries be fully or overly exploited? How can 90% of large fish be gone if every major supermarket, and I literally mean every major supermarket, says that they only source responsibly and sustainably? Something isn't adding up. Sure, illegal fishing is a huge problem. Of course it is. But illegal fishing on its own cannot be driving this destruction. Illegal fishing on its own is not responsible for the degradation that is ongoing in our oceans. There is something else happening here, which is that these labels don't mean anything. We're being lied to yet again. Let me give you one example. The Sustainable Seafood Coalition. In the UK, the supermarkets, the brands, all say this, they're part of the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. What does that mean? Nothing. Because the coalition was created by these companies. It was created or co-founded by Young's. Young's is, I think, one of the biggest seafood brands in the world. They created this coalition, the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. Check this out on the guidance for the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. This is what it says. It says, in the guidance document, it says, this guidance is intended to help SSC members in the interpretation and implementation of the codes and includes best practice advice. Ultimately, it is the responsibility of individual businesses to ensure alignment with the codes. And then what about the audits? Because, well, you have to do audits to make sure that you're in alignment with the codes. But it says this about the audits. It says audits to a member's own standard can be completed by first, second, or third party auditors. What that means is that the companies create their own standards and then they can do audits on themselves, first party audits. So a company joins the coalition by looking at the standards, then performing audits on themselves to see if they've met the standards that have been created by the members of the coalition, which are the seafood brands and the supermarkets. Obviously, they pass the audits because they're doing the audits on themselves. And then they go, great, now I'm part of the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. I can say I'm part of the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. So you can tell people, look, we're part of this coalition, which means we take sustainable seafood very seriously. And you go, okay, well, what did you have to do to be a part of this coalition? Oh, we just had to perform an audit on ourselves to see if we're meeting our own standards. (laughs) Wow. And this is why sustainable seafood doesn't exist. We cannot sustainably fish in an ocean that is 87% fully or overly exploited. We don't apply that standard to any other ecosystem, do we? I mean, look, the Amazon's a great example, isn't it? The Amazon's been deforested at an alarming rate, but it's nowhere near 87% deforested, nowhere near. And yet we're all very worried about the Amazon and rightfully so, but it's not even close to being 87% deforested. And if you ask someone, well, what should we do about the Amazon? 
people don't say, well, we should sustainably deforest it because that sounds outrageous. Sustainable deforestation in the Amazon. No, of course not. What we say is we should stop deforesting the Amazon and we should reforest the Amazon. So we should stop the bad thing and we should reforest it. Okay, great. We say, what should we do with the oceans? People say, well, we should just keep fishing, but do it in a sustainable way. That doesn't make sense. If the argument in the Amazon is stop doing the bad thing and then reforest the Amazon, so stop deforesting and start reforesting, then it should be in the oceans, stop fishing and allow the repopulation of species to occur because that's the same parallel. Let's stop doing the bad thing, which is the fishing, and let's allow the species of animals to repopulate, which they will and can if we stop the fishing. But for some reason, we have this idea that we can just do it sustainably. But not only that, but we're saying that the companies who have caused all these problems in the past can do it sustainably. So for decades, they've caused all of these problems and they turn around and say, hey guys, we've messed up so far, but don't worry, you can trust us because now we're going to do it sustainably. And yes, there's no legal definition. And yes, there's no oversight. And yes, there's no proof of any of this, but you can trust us because we have a great track record. What? Imagine if JBS, the largest meatpacking company in the world, who are responsible for huge amounts of Amazon deforestation, imagine if they turned around and said, hey guys, look, yes, we have been the main culprit responsible in deforesting the Amazon for cattle ranching. Yes, we have. But you can trust us now to do it sustainably. And yeah, there's no legal oversight. And yeah, sure, we can't prove that we're doing it sustainably, but you can trust us. (laughs) Well, (laughs) what what would we say? We'd go, oh, absolutely. And then JBS go, and do you know why you can trust us? Because we're part of the Sustainable Deforestation Coalition. And do you know how we became a part of this coalition? Well, we created it, we came up with the standards, and then we audited ourselves to make sure that we met our own standards. So now you know that we're sustainably deforesting. (laughs) It's a joke. It really is a joke. But unfortunately, it's an easy thing for us to buy into because it sounds great. Oh, sustainable fishing. Wonderful. And what about the MSC, which is the largest sustainability certification that exists in in wildcore fisheries? Well, the MSC was created in 1997. By 2006, it was nearly bankrupt. In 2006, around that time, they struck a deal with Walmart, where Walmart said by the year 2012, they would source only MSC certified seafood. This was great for the MSC because the MSC makes its money through the licensing of its logo, like the Earth Island Institute. Immediately, that's a problem. Because Walmart said they were going to start sourcing MSC certified food, all the other retailers wanted to do the same. This placed a huge demand on the MSC to certify fisheries so that there was enough supply of fish to meet the demand coming from these retailers and supermarkets. So the MSC had to start certifying more fisheries to meet the demand that these retailers were placing on them. So they did. They increased the certification by sevenfold, seven times, started certifying more and more fisheries. Now, every time they certified a fishery and the retailer wanted to use the MSC logo, they had to pay the MSC. Now, 80% of all of the income of the MSC comes from the licensing of their logo. They rely on it to survive. They've gone from being nearly bankrupt to now making about $30 million a year, 80% of which comes from the licensing of their logo. Guess who privately donates to the MSC? The Walton Family Foundation. Who are the Walton family? Well, they own Walmart. Why are Walmart privately donating to the MSC? So are Tesco. So are Sainsbury's. So are other seafood brands. Why are they privately donating? To the MSC. Does that not seem strange? That the supermarkets who can make a premium from selling MSC certified food, because 
When you see the MSC certification label, that means the supermarkets can charge you more. So they can charge you more. So that means that they have an incentive to stock the certification. The MSC is incentivized to create the certification. So that's a problem. What about the fisheries? Well, of course, the fisheries are incentivized to be certified because it's good for them. It means they can sell the animals that they kill. They can sell them to different brands, different supermarkets. So that works in their interest. They can make more money doing that. So where's the oversight? Well, the MSC say that the oversight comes from the audits themselves because the audits are carried out by third-party companies, except the problem is these third-party companies are paid by the fisheries themselves, which creates a conflict of interest. Now, these certification companies are all vying for the same business. There's multiple auditing companies and they all need to make money. And the way they make money is being paid by the fisheries to go out and certify the fisheries. So the fisheries pay the companies who are auditing them. So the auditors have to decide, well, do I bite the hand that feeds me? Because if I do, well, they're not going to hire me again and I might get a bad reputation. That's not independence. That's not accountability. That's not oversight. Because guess what? The fisheries win when the certification is granted. The auditing companies win when the certification is granted. The MSC wins when the certification is granted. And the supermarkets, brands and retailers win when the certification is granted. Everybody wins, which is a huge problem, of course. Now, this led to Daniel Pauly, who is, well, he was, he's an oceanic specialist, an ocean specialist. He was also one of the first people to be involved in meetings about the formation of the MSC back in the 90s. Now, he says that the MSC is now working in the interests of the business. It is a business working for business, is what he says, not for the environment. That's a huge problem. Now, the WWF created the MSC along with Unilever back in 1997. This is what the WWF have to say about the MSC certification now. But they're very concerned by the lack of overall improvements and the continued weakness of the certification and assurance process. That's what the WWF says, who created the MSC along with Unilever back in the 90s. So that's concerning. Now, the WWF have filed objections to, I think it's, 17 different fisheries, you know, certified fisheries. That's the WWF alone. Because the MSC have been certifying fisheries that cause huge amounts of damage. They certified a fishery in Canada, the swordfish fishery, that was shown to kill two sharks for every swordfish that was caught. So the bycatch was really high, <laughs> really high. The MSC knew and still certified them. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We've got a couple more minutes, so yeah. I mean, there's just so much to talk about, isn't there? My goodness, we're 56 minutes in or thereabouts, 50 minutes in. And there's just so much more that could be said. I appreciate it. I've been talking for a long time. So I just want to give you one more example of the MSC. In 2009, the sockeye salmon population in Canada collapsed. It was so concerning the Canadian government appointed a Supreme Court judge to lead an inquiry into why the collapse had happened. As the inquiry was taking place, the MSC announced the fishery had been granted their sustainability certification. This was whilst a huge investigation was taking place to discover why the salmon population had collapsed. The MSC granted the certification with conditions. This is a huge problem. The certification is granted often to these fisheries, but with conditions. What that means is that the MSC recognizes the fisheries don't meet the criteria required to be certified. And so they give them conditions saying, oh, you have to meet these conditions to be certified in the future, except they have years to meet these conditions. And even when they don't, 
the fisheries still get certified, recertified. This happened with the sockeye salmon. Because three years after they were certified initially, the sockeye salmon fishery had not even met half of the conditions given to them by the MSC. And yet the MSC still allowed them to be certified sustainable. Now, what's interesting is this fishery needed the certification to sell into the European market. Now, you might say that's awfully coincidental because it is a collapse of the salmon population. The certification is still given, and the fishery that gets the certification needed the certification to sell to the European market. That is so dodgy. And the inquiry being led by the Supreme Court judge was warning that the plight of the salmon could still get worse. And the MSC still certified it sustainable, even though the population actually collapsed. All right, we'll leave it there. That's a lot. Maybe, Maybe I'll talk about this again. Maybe I'll talk more about the MSC in a little bit more detail. But that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Wow, there's so much. I guess let's round it up. Sustainable fishing, commercial fishing does not exist. Let's leave the oceans alone. Let's allow the oceanic populations to repopulate and let's allow our oceans to survive. Let's allow them to do what they want to do. Stop believing the logos, stop believing the labels, eat plant-based, protect our oceans, protect animals, protect land animals, be vegan, (laughs) all of that stuff. And ultimately, I suppose, raise awareness, spread information about this issue. Watch Seaspiracy if you haven't and encourage your friends, family, and those who follow you on social media, those in your life, to do the same if they haven't already as well. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Have a great rest of your week, and I look forward to speaking to you all in the next podcast. Until then, stay safe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll speak very soon.